Overlake. Well, it is great to see you this morning. Beautiful, beautiful morning. Uh, Overlake, I love you. You are a really good-looking church, and uh, I, I'm very excited about the challenge that I get to bring today. Uh, if you want to take a look at your notes in your handout, you'll see today's message is called Be the Church. And we are, we're actually about two-thirds of the way through a vision campaign that um, God birthed on our hearts years ago, and it's called um, the OCC 2012 Vision Campaign. Wrap it up next year at the end of 2012, and you can see sort of the banners up and the challenge is that we're changing the world by degrees, be the degree. We got the shirts on, the be the degree right here, the changing the world by degrees. Don't look at the bottom part down here, but uh, uh, top part's good. And, and uh, so very, very excited today. Um, and, and maybe you're just checking this whole church thing out and you're like, well, what does that mean to, to be the church, right? At Overlay, I've been here for eight years, and from the very beginning, when God brought us up here, we've been saying, hey, we don't want to... We don't want to play church. We don't want to pretend to be church. We don't want to just come to church. We really want to own this idea of being the church. And if, if that doesn't make any sense to so you, don't you know, totally understand what that's like, let me unpack it a little bit. Today, I'm going to teach you some Greek. This morning, I'm going to teach you a little Greek. Some of you don't think I go very deep. We're going to go deep today. You're going to learn Greek as deep as you realize you want to go. So, the, 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 and there's no notes for this. You might want to write this down somewhere on your outline. The word in the New Testament that designates church is the word ecclesia. Ecclesia. And you can uh, jot down sort of what that word is. And it's kind of an interesting word, ecclesia, and, and this idea of assembly or gathering. And you need to understand that in the New Testament, every time the word church is used, this is the word you see, ecclesia. And what's important about that is that it designates a group of people. At its core, it's, it's defining a group of people that are connected around one central theme. And that theme is they believe that Jesus was crucified for the sins of the world, that he died, was buried, that he rose again from the dead, proving he was in fact God in the flesh, and then serving and sharing and living and loving wherever and whenever and however they could in such a way that they would bring that central theme of their gathering to be the very foundation of their own lives as well. And so they wanted to reveal it as their utmost concern. And so every time you read through your New Testament, every time you see the word the church, and, and the church is mentioned all over the New Testament, right? It's what Jesus wants to build. It's, it starts in the book of Acts. Every letter that's written in that, in that New Testament, all the letters, they're all to the church. Every time you see that phrase, the word that's used is ecclesia. And it refers to the people uh, of God that are involved in the movement of God. Okay. Now... Several hundred years after the New Testament was written, another term comes into play. And this is, uh, you know, 400, 500 years after um, Jesus was on the scene. And the term, it's, it's, uh, it's not a German term. It's sort of a pre-German term. Germany wasn't around then. It's a Visigoth term. And the term that's used for church is the term Kirche. Kirche. Right? K-I-R-C-H-E, Kircha. And the definition of Kircha is the house of the Lord. 
Now, here's the deal. Um, it's tragic that that change occurred. Absolutely tragic. And, and you can see, right, that our word in English for church, it's a derivative. It's the Anglo-Saxon derivative of that Visigoth word, Kircha. And I don't know how you pronounce Kircha. If it, 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 you know, Kircha, you know, bless you kind of a thing. Or if it's, we actually called up a German guy and said, how do you pronounce Kircha? And he's like, Kircha. It sounded like he was sick on the phone. So, um, I don't know exactly how you pronounce it, but you can see that our word church with, it, with its hard ch sound, it, it's coming from the word kircha. It doesn't come from the word ecclesia. And, and so something then has happened, some profoundly uh, shifted in this idea of church, right? It, it went from talking about people to talking about the house of the Lord. And you might say, well, Mike, why is that so tragic? To me, that just seems like some kind of a kickback to the old school idea of the tabernacle in the Old Testament or later the temple, you know, the house of God where God dwelt specifically, his presence was manifest there. That is true. And that's exactly why it's so tragic. Because in the New Testament, as the word is used and defined, it refers exclusively to people. Not to buildings, not to property. The, the word refers to the people of God swept up in a glorious movement of God. And by definition, movements move. You might want to write that down. That's the dumbest thing you'll ever write down in church. That movements move. By definition, there is movement involved. Okay, And so people, the church, referring to people, they're dynamic, growing, learning, laughing. They're excited. They're empowered. They're encouraged. They're fun. There is momentum that's inherent in the word church, ecclesia, this concept. And so it really does taint the way you view the scriptures if you're operating out of a kirche model or if you're operating out of an ecclesia model. For example, in Matthew, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says to them, who do people say that I am? And the disciples answer, well, some say you're a prophet, some say you're a madman, etc., etc. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And then Peter pipes up and he says, I say you're the son of God. I say you're Messiah. I, I say you're the anointed one of God. And then Jesus responds to Peter. Look what he says. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. In other words, you got it right. And you don't know why God gave you the answer. And I tell you that you were Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Please circle that phrase. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Some of your translations say the gates of hell will not prevail or the gates of death will not overcome it. And, and there's this, uh, you know, all sorts of, of movement concept in what Jesus was saying. And if you have the, the Kircher kind of paradigm, you read this and he says, I'm going to build my church upon this rock called Peter. And the framework that you shift into is, well, Peter is kind of like the cornerstone or this foundation rock. And then the whole rest of the foundation is going to be built. And Jesus was a carpenter, so he was useful with the hammer. And this idea kind of makes sense. This, you know, cathedral and Jesus is putting in the flying buttresses and the steeples and, you know, the landscaping. And it's a beautiful thing he's building on Peter. Only that's not the analogy that Jesus is using at all. Right? The analogy is Jesus is using is he's saying, 
I'm going to launch an arrow from this bow named Peter. I am going to release a movement. I'm going to start an avalanche. I'm going to cause a ripple that will build into a tsunami and will soak the very continents. And the rock I'm going to throw in the pond is the rock called Peter. And that's the analogy that's the right one because he says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And you know that gates are stationary, right? Gates don't move. They swing open. They close. They lock. Gates don't move, but gates shall not prevail. They shall not overcome. What he's saying is that the church is going to overwhelm the gates of hell. The church is going to battering ram them to shreds. The church is going to destroy the gates of hell. We're going to invade hell and snatch up all kinds of souls. The church is going to straight up plunder the place. Jesus is saying, and and he can't be talking about a building because buildings don't plunder and they don't battering ram and they don't move at all. Buildings just sit there. And so Jesus is not talking about a building. He's talking about the people of God. He's talking about the people of God centered around one central concept of Jesus crucified, buried, risen again, and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And many of you, if you know church history, you know that the church was started in one day, right? The ecclesia, the movement of Jesus Christ and his church, it started in one day and it was the day of Pentecost. And the disciples were gathered and the believers were gathered and they were praying and they were waiting. Jesus had told them that the Holy Spirit was gonna come on them and and so they were waiting and they were praying for it. And on the day of Pentecost, and this was about 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the scripture describes that a mighty wind came upon them, that there was this movement of God's spirit upon them and and something wonderful and transformative and powerful happened in that moment. And they didn't know exactly how to describe it. So they talked about these tongues, uh, like flames of fire were upon them and they went out into Jerusalem and they began to proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is it was at a time when all sorts of pilgrims from all of the known world were there in Jerusalem at the time. And they heard the gospel being preached and presented in their own native tongue. And so they were amazed. It was quite a spectacle. And some of the folks that were there, they kind of laughed it off like, oh, the disciples are drunk. And Peter's like, no, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. And we would have had to get up earlier and and we didn't. And so so he starts talking. And Peter begins to preach the very first message in Christendom, right? This is the very first message ever given. And and what he does is, by the power of God's Spirit, he begins to share with them. And by the power of God's Spirit, the people that are gathered there begin to listen to him. And they take his words to heart. And he begins to unfold the truth. And he starts, you know, he's a good Jewish boy. So he starts and he brings history along with him. All sorts of Jewish history as he comes. But he begins then to turn and to talk about Jesus Christ. And he says this in Acts chapter 2. This is verse 32. He says, God raised Jesus from the dead. And we are all witnesses of this. And what's important about that statement is he's speaking in Jerusalem and he knows, as he says this, just 50 days ago, the events called the crucifixion and the resurrection happened. And so he says, we're all witnesses of this. Do you know, it's interesting. Nobody said, oh, but, but I can take you to his body right now. I can take you to the grave right now. I can take you, I can show you that he's still in the grave. Nobody said that. They all knew 
the events that had unfolded. They, they all understood. They, this was front page news just a couple of months ago. So everyone there knew what he was talking about. Right? Jesus, he, he has risen from the dead. He says, go to verse 36. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. I talk about getting right in somebody's face, right? He got up in the grill. He got in their kitchen. I don't know what the phrase is today. Anyway, he was, he was right up and he said, this is Jesus whom you crucified. And do you know what? They didn't have an, an excuse. They were there. So many of them, they were the ones shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The Holy Spirit was, was a part of this whole scenario. And the Holy Spirit was there and convicting their hearts. And so they cried out to Peter. They said, uh, or it says, Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Here's Peter's reply. Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what struck me this week as I was going through this passage is, as far as we know, this, this is something that, that Peter's just sharing off the cuff right here. This is Peter just presenting what it is that God's downloading to him. We don't have any record that Peter wrote some kind of an inauguration message that, you know, first day of the church, it needs to be good and polished. Let me practice this a few times. Like, there's none of that. This is just Peter by the Holy Spirit of God sharing what God's putting on his heart. And, and here are people listening by the Holy Spirit of God. And then suddenly it hits Peter. Look, I'm sharing by the Spirit and they're listening by the Spirit. And, and if you accept Christ as Lord and you receive the forgiveness of your sins because you believe in his crucifixion and his resurrection, then he says, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit too. And, and the church... God's people, people of faith, were fueled by the Holy Spirit of God. And you keep on reading this passage, and what you'll see is that on that day, 3,000 people gave their hearts to Jesus Christ. 3,000 people were added to the number of believers that day. 3,000 people received God's spirit within them. And some of you, you don't like big churches. You don't like this church. It's a big church. And you're like, oh, I don't like big churches. You would have hated the first church. Right? You would have hated, because it was big from day one. You're going to hate heaven too, but that's another message. Uh, so th this idea of the very first day at the very beginning, the church was explosive and it was empowered by the spirit of God. And so immediately the church began to move and all of the people begin to share their stuff and the church begin to give. And all of the people begin to share their faith with their friends and their family. And the church begin to grow exponentially. And the whole church begin to pray together and study together and serve together. And their reputation went like wildfire before them. They impacted the entire world that they lived in. Like a little bit of yeast impacts the whole lump of dough and makes everything rise. The church did that to the Roman world. 
And you fast forward through history and you see that it was the church that started the universities. It was the church that started the hospitals. It was the church that started hospices. The church that did outreach. The church that started drug rehabs. It was the church that worked to abolish slavery. The church that reaches out against, uh, and, and touches uh, the homeless folks and the down and out and those that are marginalized. It was the church that comes against injustice. It was the church that wants to minister to at-risk kids. And the church that's making scapegoats parks and the church is starting ministries like special delivery to work with crisis pregnancies. It's the church that's on the move because they're empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And they do it because when Jesus was on the scene, he taught us to pray, Father, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And the church has been like wildfire going all over the place. And so you see, oh, look, there's the kingdom. And there's the kingdom. And look, there's a glimpse of the kingdom. And there's the kingdom. And we work diligently to see the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. And what I want to say to you very clearly is is this. Nobody, not one single person in the New Testament in their entire lifetime would have ever, even for an instant thought, that the church referred to a building, the house of God. See, it was illegal for the first 300 years for the church to own a building, or the the, the church to own any property at all. And so because it was illegal, there are people losing their lives and getting thrown to the lions and, you know, the, the Colosseums where their whole families were getting fed. And, and, and uh, so to put up a sign outside of a building that said, you know, church meets here 10 a.m. Sundays, you would have got a few people show up and, and a few Roman guards show up and then everyone would be dead. And that's a dumb marketing strategy, right? It doesn't work. And so that would not even have entered into their mind, not even for a second. Here's a couple phrases that the the first century believer would never have thought. They never would have thought, I need to go to church more. They never would have thought, I've got to start attending church regularly. Never once would they have said the phrase, well, I'll meet you at church or I'll pick you up after church. Would not have even entered into their imagination. Why? Because the word church in the New Testament is barely even a noun. It's almost totally a verb. It's referring to the people of God centered around one movement or one idea, Jesus, and then empowered to move by the Holy Spirit of God. That's what ecclesia is. And so Overlake, you have to recognize sort of the tension that we live in. Do you want to be known around the world for your kircha? Hey, you got a big kircha and you got a big parking lot. It's like miles long and you got a gymnasium and that, you got a, that's a really nice kircha. Or do you want to be known for your ecclesia? The movement of God through you is seeing the kingdom come. Like, let me ask it even clearer. What do you think God wants? Is God impressed with the kircha? Or does God want to see his ecclesia on the move? 
See, I would tell you over like, I think that you are a beautiful ecclesia in a really big kirche. That's what we are, right? But I want to make sure that we get this thing right. And so today I want to share with you how some of us, as a part of the church, are being the church. We're getting it and we're living it. And how God is moving through his people called Overlake. And then what I want to do is I want to bring a challenge to everybody to be the church. And so here we are. We're about two-thirds of the way through this OCC 2012 vision campaign. And we've got one more year to finish strong. We've got one more year to just blow the doors off. We've, we've got one more year to be the change in the world that God is calling us to be. So I want to share with you a couple of stories. The first story I started sharing with you was last summer from Thailand. And it was about this teenage girl who's rescued out of the brothel. And she gives her life to Jesus Christ. Our partners are on the ground there. We've been working to put together a discipleship program, even a live-in program where the girls who, who are impoverished, they come out of the slavery of their indebtedness in these brothels. They come into a program designed by Overlake and her partners there. And uh, so there was this one girl, she got saved. Immediately, she thought of her little sister. And so her little sister's like uh, three or four years younger than her. She, she grabs her and she gets her out of the brothels as well. They both accept Jesus Christ. I think it was last May. They both get baptized. They're both walking the program of discipleship. Both of them, then since I shared last, they both have gone back into the brothels. They've grabbed one of their friends out, saved one of their friends from the brothels. So now there's four girls all walking the road of discipleship. I just found out that in the last two months or so, 10 other gals hearing their story have come out of the brothels and are now walking that road of discipleship. We've got a team right now winging their way to Thailand. We've got another home that's opened up. We've got a program staff that's now ready to care for. Our prayer is that this week, another 30 girls are saved out of those brothels and placed into a discipleship program where they learn all kinds of life skills and they learn all kinds of value they have before the Lord. And it's a really, really cool program. But I want to tell you that none of that would have happened if God had not given you over Lake. The vision that this local ecclesia could come against human slavery and human trafficking, specifically in the sex industry in Thailand. Right? That's because of what God's done. I'm pleased to report the, that news. I'm very, very excited about that. The next story I want to tell you comes from Chile. In a town called Ioka, Chile, there was a ton of damage after the earthquake that happened a couple of years ago. So Overlake sent down teams, and we've worked with our partners on the ground to help rebuild the town, people's lives. And it's been a process, but the local government has been watching what the ecclesia has accomplished in this town. And so they gave the, uh, our partners on the ground, the, the government gave them a plot of land to build a church on. So Overlake sent three teams down, including a student ministries team, to help with this project. And the church was built and just opened two weeks ago for their first service on their first service, 45 people gave their lives to Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's a great, great story. But Overlake, you were the church that had a vision that we could be involved in seeing ecclesia multiplied into all sorts of circumstances around the world. The next thing I want to share is that today... On this date, in America, it's designated as National Orphan Day. 
right, Orphan Sunday in America. And it's a day designed for us to keep the kids in mind who've lost their parents, to pray for them or find other tangible ways that we might come alongside. So here's some statistics. Uh, how many kids are in foster care in the United States? 408,000. Okay. So that sounds like a lot of kids, 408,000. But how many evangelistic churches, how many uh, evangelical churches are there in America? There are 300,000. So you can see that if the church caught fire, if the ecclesia caught fire in America, this is a problem we actually could make a huge difference in, right? Next statistic, um, what percentage of Americans have seriously considered adopting? More than 33%. How many Americans have actually adopted less than 2%? I've always said, and you've heard me say this before, that I do believe that God is the one who calls us to adopt. Adoption is just too difficult and tricky of a road for us just to go in on our own strength, that it really does need to be a call from God. But what those statistics say to me is that God is calling, and God is stirring, and God is prompting, and we're the ones who are shutting it down. Okay. All right. Let me show you these last statistics I think are the most encouraging to me. Uh, how many churches are there in Washington state? There are 5,000 churches in our state. How many kids in Washington state are right now legally free to be adopted from the foster care system? 1,100. 1,100. So you can see how the church is poised to make a difference. Now, Overlake, let me tell you a story about you. In September, we hosted a conference here in this room called Wait No More. We invited folks from the surrounding community to come in, and we basically laid out a plan. And we said, there are uh, 1,100 kids in Washington State legally free to be adopted. We think God might be stirring some of you to adopt. And on that day, 120 families decided to walk the road of adoption. Okay? You can cheer for that. Because what that says is that says that in one day... God's ecclesia took care of over 10% of the problem in Washington, right? If in one day we can take care of 10% of the problem in Washington state, just think what God's church can do. And I say all this, I am pleased and proud to announce these things because over like it wouldn't have happened if God hadn't stirred on your heart the idea that we can be a church that comes alongside of the orphan, that comes alongside the abandoned and actually cares for those who are in need of caring, who need a family like God designed from the first place. The last story I want to share is uh, just sort of the uh, local story, just the around the corner kind of a story. And you need to know that 1,200 of you were deployed last summer for community serve day. And on one day, 1,200 of you went out into local schools and you went into some of the uh, uh, mobile home parks in our community and you served and you served without any sense of being paid or remunerated for your service. And you did that because you are the ecclesia that God is calling you to be. I was proud to realize that at our, um, a, a team from Overlake went over to Capitol Hill and participated in the Seattle HIV AIDS walk. Because the whole desire there was for the ecclesia of God to go communicate care and to communicate grace and to communicate love. And you did that. And I want to say, Overlake, that you were the church that had a dream. 
that you could impact 100,000 lives with the love of Jesus Christ. And you're doing it. You're on the way. You're rolling. So as all of these things, I want to say in so many ways, we are getting it. We are being the church. We are living out this mission. We are empowered by God's Holy Spirit. But I also want to tell you that we are, we've not accomplished all our goals in terms of the vision campaign. And we've got one more year to do it. So Overlake, we can accomplish everything that God's put in our heart, but we must go further and we must go faster. Every single one of us must be the church. And there is one additional definition of the word ecclesia in the Greek. Ecclesia, it, 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 this is a, more of a literal reading of the Greek word. It means the called out ones. Called out. And so Overlake, I'm going to spend a few moments and call you out. Right. I, I want to tell you that as a pastor, I absolutely love you. But this is the time that I get to bring the love smack. Okay? And if you're filling in the blanks, the first fill-in is really, really simple. It's the fill-in, follow through. Follow through. You see, Overlake, when we launched this vision campaign a couple of years ago, there were so many of us that made commitments. We made commitments around serving, we made commitments around praying, and we made commitments around giving because every one of the initiatives that we wanted to go after, that we felt God calling us to go after, had a a price tag associated with it financially. And so many of us, in fact, over 100% of our membership made commitments toward this campaign. Very, very excited. I consider that incredibly successful. Here's the problem. The problem has to do with follow through. Let me ask you a question. Do you think God is excited about you being a really great promise maker? You think he's excited that you make really great promises? That you have great intentions? Or do you think God is more interested in you being a promise keeper? Somebody who follows through. What do you think he wants for his church? Okay, he, he wants us to follow through. And so I have a couple of verses on your outline. The first is from Deuteronomy 23, 21. It says, when you make a vow to the Lord, your God, be prompt in fulfilling whatever you promised him. For the Lord, your God demands that you promptly fulfill all your vows or you'll be guilty of sin. It's sin. It's, it, it's sinful for us to make commitments and then blow them off. We must make our commitments. We must make our vows to the Lord. And then the scripture says, and then follow through. We fulfill those vows. In Psalm 116, verse 14, we read, I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. And so, Overlake, let me tell you where it is that that we are right now in terms of the fulfillment of our vows. And I'm going to give you some statistics. These are the statistics in terms of our finance and our financial commitments that we've made. These were the easiest to track. There are also prayer commitments and serving commitments as well. But financially speaking, Overlake, you need to know that 13% of you have made commitments, financial commitments to the Lord in terms of this campaign. And you have given 100% or more to the fulfillment of your commitment. That is absolutely successful. I think we should cheer those 13% right now and thank them from the bottom of our hearts. 
Because that is a picture, uh, that's a beautiful picture of faithfulness and follow through. And I am amazed at you and I am so proud of you and pleased. And here's the deal. So many of those, not only did they make a commitment, they fulfilled it at 100%, but then they realized, hey, I can, I can give more. I can be participating at a higher level. And so it just was an incredible show of faith and faithfulness. Very, very proud. Give you another statistic. 41% of Overlake have given less than 50% toward their financial commitment. So specifically what that stat refers to is those who have given between 10% and 50% of their stated vow to the Lord. Now, I, I want to be honest with you, Overlake. This is where Mike and Jody Howerton are. And we really wrestled with where we were uh, in terms of our financial life. We knew that God had planted adoption on our hearts. We knew that was going to be a financial consideration. And, and yet we wanted to make sure that we trusted God for this above and beyond kind of a commitment that we wanted to make. And so we prayerfully landed on a number. We gave that in in the first year which was last year, 2010, uh, we weren't able to give anything toward the, the financial campaign. In the second year and this year, we've been given monthly. We have a monthly commitment and we have a plan as 2012 rolls in that we will increase our monthly giving by a certain percentage. By the end of 2012, the Howertons will be absolutely, uh, will fulfill our commitment 100%. We, we, just, we just knew it was going to take us a little bit of time to get into the game and, and to be along that journey. But by the end of next year, we'll have this thing paid off. So here's what I want to do. If you're in that camp, you've given between 10 and 50%. I just want to encourage you. Okay. The, the campaign's not over. This is absolutely the right time to just put the rally hat on, say, I can do this. We can do this. You reevaluate some stuff. And whatever it is that you're currently given monthly, just go ahead and ratchet it up right? Say, we can make this. We can fulfill our commitment here. It's not at all too late, okay? So I just want to encourage you in this regard. Let me give you one more statistic, and this is a hard one. 17% have committed to the campaign financially, but haven't even given $1 towards following through on their commitment. Well, that's, that's a hard stat. That's a hard stat because what it says to me is that um, those of you who made that commitment, you think that it's just God's job to like make you win the lottery or, or something like that. And, and that he's just going to drop the money in your lap, then you'll give it. But we know that God works alongside of us. And so if you're in that position, I would encourage you that you would begin, even as Jody and I have made monthly commitments to the Lord, that you would do exactly the same. And that you would begin to go after it. Because maybe what you did is in faith, you put a big number down. And then, you know, the economy's gone crazy or the stocks you thought you were going to sell. Now they're, they're worth, you know, $2. And, and so you're like, oh, you know. And so you think you're out of it. You're not out of it. No, but I want to encourage you, follow through. That, that you begin to work and you're faithful with the little that you can give. You watch God come alongside. Okay. You watch him. The scripture says, again, in Deuteronomy 23, 23, but once you have voluntarily made a vow, be careful to fulfill your promise to the Lord your God. Okay, so we want to be a church. We want to be the ecclesia that follows through on our commitments. Now, let me talk to those of you, and again, it's more than 100% of our membership has committed to praying through the initiatives that God's given us as a church. 
So I want to encourage you, if that was your commitment, we know it's a part of so many, I want you to follow through as well. See, the problem is Christians say, oh yeah, I'll pray for you, or oh, I'll pray for that, or yeah, I'll pray. And then they just go off and forget. That's what Christians do. That's not what the ecclesia of God does. And so I would encourage you, these booklets will be available at all of the booths on the way out the hallway. If you have questions about what initiatives we're going after, would you grab one of these? And would you spend time praying through these initiatives as God brings them to your heart? If you have questions about where you are in terms of your commitment to the, to the campaign, your commitment to God, um, there, are, there are folks that are at the Serve the World counter, and they'll be able to answer any questions you have. And then lastly, if you just joined our church in the last you know, couple of years or so, and you don't really even know what the vision campaign's all about, please take the time to grab one of these booklets. You'll be amazed at how awesome the church, the ecclesia that you're a part of is going after the kingdom of God. Okay, so go ahead and grab one of these books. The first challenge I wanna bring to you is that you would follow through on your commitments to God. And the second challenge I wanna bring to you is that you would serve somewhere. That you would serve somewhere. And I say this over Lake because when I talk about being the church, the spiritual reality is that you are the church. You are the church. This is the reality that you, if you have said yes to a relationship of love with God through Jesus Christ, you are the church. The Holy Spirit dwells within you and you are connected to the body of Christ. But when you're not consistently serving Jesus in your life, that they have no priority whatsoever to serve, then you're not practicing your faith. You're not being the church. Look what the scripture says in Ephesians 4.11. It says, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. And then he lists a few of these. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. Okay, so I'm in that category. I'm a pastor. I'm a teacher. And so here's my job, right? He says, I am called to do something. I'm, I'm called to equip and to ennoble and to release. But then look what the church, right? The ecclesia of God. Look what the ecclesia of God is responsible for. It says, their responsibility, referring to pastors and teachers, etc., is to, what? Equip God's people to do what? To do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ, right? The idea is it's not that the professionals, they, they get paid so they do the work of the church and then everyone else just comes and we receive some vague spiritual entertainment for the week and we feel good and we got a warm fuzzy from God and we go home and we forget about the whole thing. The idea is we are the church and so we want to live this out. I, I want to ennoble you and release you for the fullness of doing his work in the world and bringing the kingdom of God to bear. And again, the church is the body of Christ. So I put a couple of verses that refer to that on your notes. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul's talking about how we're all a part of the same body, the body of Christ as the church. He says, but in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. And it's an interesting kind of analogy. You have to think about your own body for a moment to get it. You read the whole passage, it makes sense. But he's saying, you know, God, he, he didn't make mistakes. This wasn't by kind of random anything. That when you look at your body, God had a design for each and every part of your body. Right? So he had in mind the little toe. 
And he had in mind your spleen and your liver. And he had in mind your nose. And some of those parts are more prominent than those other parts, right? In terms of my nose, it's, it's quite a bit more prominent than m- many of yours even. And so you recognize, I mean, you know, my, my nose keeps my children dry in the rain. Like it, there's, there's a recognition, right, that some of the more prominent pieces, they're not even that important. But some of the less prominent pieces are very important. And the key is that they all need to function together. He goes on in that chapter to say, <clears throat> hey, it's a whole body concept. If it was all an eyeball, right, where would, uh, how would they get anywhere, you know? How would they go to a restaurant? How would they enjoy a meal? Like, if it's all one thing, nothing works. So the variety of the parts of the body, this is God's plan, that verse says. What you need to understand is that means you're not here by accident. That you have a role to play. There's a function for you specifically, and if you don't, fulfill that function, the the entire church and the entire kingdom is missing out. The scripture also says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, all of you together are Christ's body and each of you is a part of it. Each one of you is a part of it. And we're designed to be functional in the body of Christ. Think about going to run a race and you're there at the starting line, the starting gun goes off, you start to run, but your leg just decides, I'm not into this race. And just kind of goes limp. And you're, you're hopping along. You're dragging your leg behind you. You're never going to, you're like, come on, leg. You know, join the party. Let's go. We're moving. Well, that's how, if you're not serving anywhere in the church, if you're not serving anywhere in the world, if, if serving isn't a part of how you live your life, you're not being the church. You're like that functionless leg. I know some of you right now, I just know it. Some of you are writing this off. You're like, you know what? I like coming when you're like this funny preacher boy, but now you're sort of, you're, you're getting in my face a little bit. And you know what? Maybe I'll just, I'll just go to another church. A lot of great churches around. Listen, can I just be honest with you? I'm friends with all of the pastors in this area. <laughs> Do not go to these other churches, right? They will just be mad at me. They'll say, why will you send all this dead weight my direct, you know? No, 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 no. I get it. If you don't like me, you think my voice is too whiny, whatever. Like, I, I understand. Here's the deal. If you go to another church, serve there, right? The idea is be the church. And you might think, well, you know what, Mike? Maybe I should just stop coming to church. Okay. I think you're moving a bit in the right direction. Not that you should, should stop coming to church, but you should stop just coming to church. Absolutely. Yeah, the idea of just coming to church, that's not at all a part of the equation. But the idea of gathering together, yeah, that's ecclesia means come together. And so we see from the very, very beginning, the church came together and assembled together and gathered together for corporate prayer and for corporate teaching and for corporate praise and worship. No, come together. In fact, you're encouraged to continue to prioritize coming together in the assembly of believers. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, we read, let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do. We see this all the time. Of course, some people neglect meeting together, but the encouragement is, no, we don't neglect our meeting together, but we encourage one another, especially now, as the day of his return is drawing near. And so we want to continue to meet together, but we don't want to just meet together. We want to serve together. We want to follow through on our commitments. We want to be the church. I'll show you a quick video of of, uh, 
a really exciting development that's happening in our children's ministry. This is Pastor Bob, our children's ministry pastor. Hey, Pastor Bob here. I am behind the curtain in the construction zone of Kidtown and want to give you a sneak peek into what's coming up. We are super excited to open this whole space up to continue to welcome new families to OCC and to teach and to serve kids, to share the hope of Jesus with them. With the ministry growing like it is, with more and more kids coming, we have great new ways of serving in Kidtown with our check-in rooms, being tour guides, all sorts of fun things to do. We're going to have a desk outside the construction zone after service in the main hall. We'll be there with the team to talk about serving. We can't wait to see you down here in Kidtown. So one of the things that you need to know is right now at Overlake, our children's ministry is bursting at the seams. It's just such an incredible thing to watch as more and more families are coming to Overlake, more and more classes are being filled and overfilled. And there's just, it's kind of like it's, it's bursting at the seams right now. But when we launch Kidtown, we open it in a couple of weeks and you'll see it. I, I can't wait for you to see it. You need to understand that children's ministry is going to go through the roof. And, and so, friends, if you're not serving somewhere, you're thinking to yourself, you know what, where could I serve? There are a million ways to serve. Kidtown needs you. Our children's ministry needs you. There, there are all sorts of ways to plug in. In fact, we got an email this week from one of our Kidtown volunteers. He writes, we, my wife and I, enjoy our time with the three-year-olds in children's ministry each week. And to be honest, I have to say, this is about the best time I have every week. Well, you know, that doesn't surprise me. You know why? Because God's Holy Spirit resides within you. And as you serve and as you give and as you function as the church, his pleasure and his blessing is going to be on you. You will. You're going to have the best time of your week. You think it's going to be a drag to show up and serve? It's going to bless you. It's going to bless the kingdom. Okay? So I want to challenge you over, like, be the church and follow through on your commitments. Be the church and serve somewhere. Be the church. Don't just come to church. Don't just play church or pretend church. No, be the church that Jesus is calling you to be. See, Jesus painted a picture to Peter. And the picture that he painted was that the church was going to be the most powerful movement the world had ever seen. That fueled by the Holy Spirit, the church was going to topple the godless and ruthless dictatorship of Rome by overwhelming love and diligence and by the care of men and women who were ready to lay it all on the line, even to the point of martyrdom for the sake of Jesus Christ. Jesus paints this picture of a church that would flow like a tsunami into every country on the planet, soaking every continent through with his love, quenching every thirst with his grace. He painted a picture of a church that was not a building, but a movement of selfless, sacrificial servants who impacted eternity. And there's another picture of church that I've seen, and so have you. And it's where pathetic pastors come to their congregations with their cap in hand. And they say, please, would you serve? Please, we have such needs. Please, would you give? We need to turn the lights on. Yeah, uh, please, uh, please, may I have some more gruel? You know, uh, uh, please, uh, we'll make it easy for you. We'll hold your hand. We'll set the bar really, really low. You can get over it, please. I want to tell you very clearly, Overlake. 
The greatest privilege and honor of your life is to be the church that Jesus calls you to be. The highest and holiest destiny you could possibly aspire to is involved with you being the church that Jesus died on the cross to birth. You need to understand that there is nothing else in this life that holds a flickering candle flame to the eternal importance of you getting this truth that you are to be the church. And if you don't like this ecclesia and you don't like this pastor, I get it. Wherever you go, be the church there. Like you have to get this. And if you think to yourself, no, nah, I'm going to blow this whole thing off, you do have options. Let me tell you what they are. I don't want anyone to miss this. Your option, if you blow off being the church, it's hell. It's hell. Yeah, the, the church is the bride of Christ. And on the last day, Jesus is going to sweep you off your feet. And he's going to take you to be with him forever. Honeymoon's never going to end. That's what being the church is now. You're preparing yourself as the bride of Christ. And you let Jesus sweep you off your feet in this life and in the next one. And the option is, if you don't, you're rejecting Jesus now and forever. See, the scripture says this in Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride, that's you, that's me. His ecclesia has made herself ready. Second Corinthians eleven two. I promised you, Paul writes, as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. And so, yes, I'm not going to whine at you and I'm not going to beg you. I want you to understand, Overlake, as clearly as I can possibly state this, that you need to be the church. Aren't you just sick of playing? I mean, aren't you just sick of pretending? There's no satisfaction. There's no joy in just coming and consuming and then leaving glutted spiritually. There's no joy in thinking that this gathering, that this building exists just to serve you, right? No, no, no. We are called to come and to serve and to give and to lay it all down. And in the process, all kinds of needs get met all over the place. And so I really just want to encourage you, Overlake, that you would be the church. We've got such a high and a holy calling ahead of us. And I really want to encourage you, with everything I, I am, that you would go after everything that God's called us to. All right, let's roll our sleeves up. Let's get to work. Amen. Now, at this point, I would love every single one of you to grab that connection card out. We haven't done this in a while, so right now I'm asking every single person in here, grab that connection card and take a look at the next steps on the back. And the first says, I accept Jesus as Lord for the first time today. And even if I've been speaking and I'm giving a hard word about what the church looks like and what sacrifice looks like, I trust that the Holy Spirit of God is moving in this place. And if, if you feel like, you know what, I want to be a part of something eternal. I, I want to give my life to Jesus. Check that box and we want to be a resource for you. The next feeling says, I'm committing myself to Jesus and to being the church. That, that, that is the framework that I want to enter into this covenant with. 
I want to be the church. The next one says, I will follow through. And the last one says, I will serve somewhere. Now, over like my desires, every one of you would find one thing on that next step list to check. But let me just stop you right there. Don't check it if you're not going to follow through. The last thing I want to do is give you one more opportunity to be sinful before the Lord. Okay? We want to make our commitments to the Lord and we want to follow through. And if God's stirring you, go ahead and check this box. And we can drop it in the offering bucket as it's passed. Let's pray together right now. Lord Jesus, I, I am so amazed at how you were the one who taught about true love. You, you, you taught about sacrifice and selflessness. And then you lived it perfectly. And you call us to that same road. And so from the very beginning, we've just recognized that being a part of your movement means to pick up our cross and to follow you and, and to walk in the roads that you call us to walk. And, and so right now, Jesus, we ask that you would grace us where we've fallen short. We confess that we've fallen short. We confess that we are not yet the ecclesia that you've called us to be. But God, we also ask for courage. We ask for courage that you would come alongside and that the power of your Holy Spirit would fill us and fuel us. Show us that we're not in this thing alone, but rather we get to serve alongside of you, that we are co-laborers with Christ and that you are calling us to a high and a holy destiny. We say yes to that. We ask that you would meet us in our need. For some of us, we are afraid. For some of us, we are stuck. For some of us, we can't see the way ahead. We ask that you would meet us, that you would, that you would bring your victory so that we could see the way forward. And we pray all of this knowing that you are a God who is close to us. You hear our prayers. We know that it's not just our desire that we are the church, but it's your desire as well. So we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.